Armed with a fresh stack of calendar pages and the unique optimism of a new year, you've just fallen into After Office Hours with the Puget Sound Economic Forecaster. It's here that you'll find an ongoing conversation about our Puget Sound regional economy. We record this podcast about one month after posting our quarterly forecast and report as a way to expand on the report, but also engage you in some of the discussions we have every day in our office. Today is January 12th, 2023, as we hit record. Depending on when you are listening, we may have fallen into an alternative universe, so we highly advise you look both ways and do not run with scissors or random internet sources. To say a lot has transpired in the last two years is an understatement. I will leave it to our guest today to color in the year ahead, but let's see who we have on deck today for this economic dive. Dr. Hart Hodges is an economics professor at Western Washington University. Hart writes the regional forecast article and will occasionally contribute other articles based on the topics. Hart and I both co-direct the Center for Economic and Business Research at Western. Bethany King is our research economist and works with the switches and dials of many of our models while providing a wide array of insights into the forecast. Bethany writes many of the articles each quarter as well as the monthly updates for our digital subscribers. Cam McKenzie rounds out the talent portion of the show today. Cam is our research designer and contributes to the forecaster with a variety of articles and the retail section. My name is James McCafferty. I serve as the general manager and publisher for the newsletter, but it's really the team of us that makes all the magic happen from our outside partners and our center's own research staff. So Bethany, let's try something different for this episode. It's been about a month since we published. In that month, we've seen many different economic metrics be updated, revised, published. I'm interested in reflection on our last report. What would you update if you could magically revise time? I think the biggest thing that we're always wondering is what is the Fed going to do next? We normally find that out a couple of days after we publish or just in the nick of time where we can't quite change anything in time. But we really were not sure whether the Fed was going to raise rates in December and by how much. And of course they did. And we'll probably see a couple more rate increases coming. So our model doesn't directly include the Fed funds rate, but it does include other interest rates, which impact the model in a number of ways. So I would say that's the biggest thing right now is that I would have liked to see the model with a little bit higher interest rate forecast and one where the interest rate ticks up a few more times in early uh, 2023. And I'm going to drag in Hart kicking and screaming to see if he has anything else to say. Related to interest rates and what's the Fed going to do is inflation, right? Because the Fed's trying to anticipate how quickly inflation may come down or how, how sticky it may be with the labor market. Uh, and, and inflation has been curious, right? It's been dropping month to month. Like so much of what we've talked about in the most recent publication, it depends on how you're looking at, at some of the data. Are you looking at month to month changes or year over year? Because you can look year over year and say, oh, we still have six and a half percent inflation. That's way too high and uh, decide to be in a bad mood. Or you can look month to month and say, we've had a long stretch of uh, months where inflation is coming down. Uh, everything's fine. And that makes, makes it hard. I think in the most recent publication, we were all anticipating inflation coming down fairly steadily. So I don't have to change anything in terms of revision, but you know, the, the inflation part of, of the interest rate story. We've talked about quite a bit uh, in our last podcast and um, a little bit in the publication about population and, and how population really is important in our modeling work and how population can impact uh, forecasts. And so regional population growth has been forecasted to slow that's come out in this last couple of weeks. 
Given its importance in thinking about economic growth and or economic stability, I'm curious if you can explain a little bit about what's going on with population and what that may mean for economic forecasts as we look forward. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to remember that buried in, inside the forecaster model is a strong relationship between population and employment growth. I mean, the, the model, uh, I think rightly, based on historic uh, trends, you can't have a lot of employment growth without a bit of uh, population growth. And what we've seen lately is, and I think the story you're probably pointing to, James, is that Seattle lost people the first time in, in decades. And I'll say that's not terribly surprising because the data are actually from 2020 to 2021 for that for that loss. Uh, so the same is true in San Francisco, Seattle, New York. Some of the superstar cities that, that grew so fast over the past couple of decades and got quite expensive in terms of housing and some other things. When people have the chance to work remotely for an extended period of time, why not move to where things are a little bit a little bit cheaper? Now, a lot of the folks that left Seattle only went 30 miles away. Some some left, so, you know, some went to different cities and different states. So I, I think it's gonna be really interesting over the next few years to see how hybrid work balances out, what it really turns into, what it means, and what that signifies for population growth. And that matters for us because we'll have to start talking about growth in a given city like Seattle. Is the economy doing fine, but the workers are elsewhere? It's gonna add layers of, of discussion and just do businesses follow? You know, can, can you keep a business in a city and the workers are elsewhere or do, or do the businesses completely go? So I, I think we, it's, it's going to be a, a, an important topic to watch. That, but it does come back to that connection between population and, and economic activity. Well, and also immigration, right? Because when we think about population, population gets heavily influenced by immigration. Cam, in this this last uh, edition here, you put together, I thought, well, I could be biased, but I thought it was a very interesting article um, in terms of immigration. And why is immigration important in general and specifically within our region, I guess, is, is what I'd like you to talk about. But also, what kind of trends should I be thinking about when it comes to immigration? Yeah, James. So immigration is especially important in the Pacific Northwest for several reasons. Um, for one, immigrants make up a large portion of workers in our vital technology, healthcare, and agricultural industries, which make up a huge part of the Washington and Pacific Northwest economy. Um, their diverse experiences and skill sets for these immigrants um, in these industries specifically really helps drive regional innovation and economic growth. And secondly, immigrants contribute heavily to local economics. They account for about one in five self-employed Washington residents, and those businesses create jobs and generate billions in income for the American economy. Uh, third, America has a shrinking labor force as heart kind of talked about on the population side, and immigration is going to be a huge part of that. Between COVID and policy changes over the last couple of years, the rate of immigration dropped sharply and has only recently begun to re recover to pre-pandemic levels. And so as a related trend, the Pew Research Center forecasted that without new immigrants, the American labor force will drop about 7 million workers in the next two decades as baby boomers age out of the workforce. And so opening immigration back up is going to be one of the answers to that declining labor force and declining population and boosting the American economy again. We should be seeing a slow increase in naturalizations as immigration services brings the time to process applications back down. Yeah, I as, you, as you were doing this research, Cam, I, and, and Hart, I'm going to let you jump back in here in a second. I, 
one of the questions and comments we had going in the office as you were putting together that article is just the natural biases that happen when people think about immigrants and immigration and what kind of work they do. And we often will forget that um, companies like Microsoft and Facebook depend on high wage immigrants to fill roles because there's not a, a, an available workforce for them to draw from. And it's more expensive for them to hire those immigrants. And so immigration is, is a much more complex discussion than oftentimes people will give it full face credit for. So it's it's something I hope our audience here will will spend a few minutes looking into because it, it gets far more complicated. And Hart, you were going to add something. Well, I was going to say some you, you covered some of it. it. You know, we often think about immigration as a zero sum game in the labor market, that if if somebody from an, another country gets a job, that that's a job that an American can't can't take. And that's often not the story at all, whether you're talking about agriculture, high tech or something else. And I wanted to sort of highlight something Cam just said about declining labor force. I mean, we have have to remember that not only are a lot of workers out of the labor force, we have a smaller labor pool. Birth rates fell in the wake of the Great Recession. So you have smaller cohort, smaller group born in 2008, 9, 10, 11. those folks are you know, hitting high schools now. They'll be in college soon. And people are talking about a, quote, enrollment cliff. Um, that's going to ripple into the labor market. Uh, so you've got baby boomers retiring and a, that is sort of a, a hole in the workforce population right behind that. We should not take a narrow negative view of immigration and what role it might play. I think there's another huge hole to add on there, uh, which is the healthcare industry specifically, especially as those baby boomers start to age out and require more kind of um, care um, in terms of the healthcare. About 20% of those healthcare workers are all immigrants. And so new immigrants are going to be a vital part of taking care of those people as they age as well. Bethany, I know this was a hot topic for you as well, as we as we talked about this in the office. And just is there anything you'd want to add to this? There's some tricky things about immigration and especially how we study immigration because it's very difficult to study illegal immigration. Um, And so we have to consider all of these components that um, while there is a lot of research on immigration, it's not very sound because there's not a lot of people that are willing to talk to you. There's not really good data. So we also have to keep that in mind that that's another another component of this that we just we have some gaps in our knowledge and um, yeah, we got to keep that in mind as well. Perfect. Yeah, no, it's it's a great topic, and again, I I really do encourage our listeners to to dig into immigration. Uh, there's it's it's far more complex than I think most people give it credit for. Cam mentioned healthcare for baby boomers. I just want to say healthcare for baby boomers is an amazingly important topic. As a boomer, I want good healthcare. Bethany, that brings me to the next logical question after we, we've talked here about workforce and, and the, the necessary immigration and, and gaps that we have in our workforce. It really brings us this, this logical question about the workforce, workforce participation levels. The bumper stickers for this are just are great. No one wants to work anymore. People are too busy living in their parents' basements. And I'll just leave it there. What is going on with workforce participation? Alrighty, so I know you don't really want to talk about people living in their parents' basement, but we're going to pause and talk about people living in their parents' basements for a moment because I think it actually indicates a lot more about our economy than you might initially think. 
So we're seeing a large percentage of the population aged 18 to 30 living at home. I'm not one of those people, but I know a lot of people who are. And so I want to break that down for just a moment. So instead of working full time and giving half of your income to your landlord, a lot of people are working part time and effectively enjoying the same amount of disposable income, but with twice as much free time. So that's a no brainer for a lot of people and for a large portion of the workforce. And it's a byproduct of a lot of things, including rapidly rising costs of living, wage stagnation, and no longer believing that hard work will move you up the ladder. So I think it reflects a lot more than people are lazy and they don't want to work anymore. It's reflective of a lot of other issues, underlying problems in our economy. Now, it's not those people that don't want to work anymore. If we break down the labor force participation rate um, into different categories, we can see lots of different things. So the prime age, labor force participation rate, that's people aged 21 to 54. That's continued to rise this entire time since the since the start of the pandemic and it took a big dip, it's come up steadily. It's the people that are age 55 and up who quote, don't wanna work anymore, right? They're just, they're retiring. Some of them are retiring early. It's really all a demographics issue. People are, people are aging and no longer part of the workforce and we don't expect that to change. So this is just a product of an aging population and it's going to have a lot of impacts on how the economy functions and what labor looks like I want to jump back in because, Bethany, I think you correctly highlighted the, the 55 and over group not working. And there's a number of them that uh, have, have retired early, uh, in part because of the wealth effects of equity in their house and so on. There's also the breakdown of men versus women. Labor force participation rate for women has, we were, has, has come back up. We were originally thinking women were the ones getting hit by kids at home for, co- you know, the, school remote learning and so on. The conundrum is is men and how many men are out of the workforce, the men that are missing from the workforce. And I, you know, I, there was a lot of discussion about this well before COVID studies in 2013 predicting by the Bureau of Labor St- uh, Statistics and, and the Fed predicting what would labor force participation rate for men be in 2023. Well, here we are. Uh, there was a book in 2016 about the, the missing male workers. So there, there were trends going early, well before COVID, that, pointing to problems with uh, men in the workforce, men watching their uh, manufacturing job the, where the pay wasn't keeping up with what was going on with tech. So all of a sudden you've got a, a disgruntled view of what the job is worth. Um, and you, you know, a group of of, of folks you know, wondering what role they play anymore. So there's a, a, a sort of a job satisfaction component. There are actually men, uh, more men staying home to take care of aging parents or take care of kids, uh, some role reversals in terms of gender. So there's a, uh, there's a lot of fun, interesting things to unpack in that declining labor force participation rate for, for men. It really makes me wonder, and there's no answer to this, so no one has to, I'm not going to put, put anyone in the hotspot, but it makes me wonder about the influence of social media and people's per- perspectives of what normal looks like and how that how that makes them behave. And I'll just leave that there, TikTok aside, and we'll move on because I want to ask, speaking of TikTok, I'm actually very interested in, in automation because I think as we continue to think about workforce, the, the con- the topic of automation is, is increasingly is a 
possible pathway forward with low participation and employment gap. In this last couple of weeks, McDonald's opened their very first fully automated restaurant. And so there are no humans involved. You just walk in and it's all to go, go figure. And I guess it's all drive through. So it's all drive to go. So Hart, if we have issues with having enough workers, isn't this the obvious key, right? Let the send the robots in. What type of work can be automated? What does that start to look like? No, that's not fair. There's too many questions packed in there. Um, I think you're asking if it was the obvious solution or obvious key. Uh, partly, right? I mean, as, as the tensions in the labor market push wages up, it makes alternatives to human labor uh, more attractive. You know, and then the, the follow-up question is what types of work can be automated? Uh, the, I think the answer starts with anything routine. Uh, and builds out from from there. Uh, you, I don't. I don't think people were really expecting that the whole team of folks making burgers uh, at a place like McDonald's could be replaced with one machine. But uh, when did when did that uh, restaurant in California come up with that thing where the only only person was the one loading the machine? Yeah, there was a person in California or a company in California that I think that was three or four years ago that did the the one person burger machine. Well, so now you've got that just plopping burgers out on a conveyor belt that goes to the drive-thru. I mean, and the, when you pulled up to the drive-thru and somebody was taking your order, you've always assumed the person taking your order was inside the restaurant. And that's not needed to be true for a long time, right? And you can farm that out to somebody who's really good at upselling. Uh, or I guess now it's just an AI that's really good at upselling. Uh, you know, we we so we typically think of you know manufacturing floor jobs that are really routine in nature. But uh, how about preparing taxes? Why can't a computer do that? Uh, there's a whole lot of jobs that are uh, technically at at risk from automation, um, and maybe just parts of jobs. You know, somebody in the financial services, wealth management. Uh, how are they going to work with a generation that's used to the, the Robin Hood model or the automated rebalancing, right? So I, th I think it's not just, is my job 100% at risk? Some jobs are 100% at risk, but it's also, what are the parts of my job that really require me? It's going to be a, a fascinating thing to, to watch evolve. And I'm going to let uh, Bethany jump in here. I have automated a great deal of my job. I no longer have to make a graph manually or anything like that. I, I teach a robot to do a lot of my job and it works out very nicely. So we should not uh, think of automation as all doom and gloom and oh no, the robots are taking your job. No, as, as, long as, as long as you're on the right side of this curve, it's, it's gonna be a fascinating, wonderful ride. Right. Uh, so the Jetsons, just for, for, for you know, a, a, an archaic reference for some people and for some people, a, a flashback to their childhood, I won't mention any names. The Jetsons was set in 2062. So that's 39 years from now. So I guess in 39 years from now, we should should get there because George Jetson should have been born last year. So hopefully um, we see that moving forward. Okay, so I got to move forward then to, um, I got to talk about retail. I mean, we just came out of the holiday season, right? I mean, everyone had their sleighs laid up. Supply chains are starting to get back to normal, Cam. I see inflation data looks like it things are looking a little more stable there are consumers really seeing a calmer retail landscape that's going to encourage them or do we still see have some concerns with our retail forecasts 
I think we're definitely still seeing concerns regarding the retail forecasts. Um, holiday spending did increase about 7% over 2021's numbers, but consumer sentiment overall is still at a major historical low point. Uh, consumers were more budget focused also at the end of 22 with way more spending on substitute goods and discounted products. And so another major change is what type of money consumers are using. And so the personal savings rate has tanked to about 2.4%, which is really low historically. And consumers are utilizing way higher rates of credit to make their everyday purchases. According to some credit unions, the credit card debt increased about 13% over previous year and less consumers are paying their balance off every month. So I think it's reasonable that we see some retail spending decline in the first quarter of 2023 as customers begin to prioritize their spending until um, declines in inflation really start to take hold and they can pay those debts off. Bethany, commercial real estate looks like it's got some transitional activity. I think that's the nice way to put it, transitional activity. I'm seeing reports that commercial construction spending is pivoting from office to more residential the thought that demand for office space is going to stagnate or decline under work remote restructuring or whatever we're going to call those realignments now. What are you seeing in the construction data and forecasts? Absolutely. In places like Portland and Seattle, uh, where there's plenty of off, uh, plenty of empty office buildings and not enough housing, we're seeing the shifts in the markets away from office and commercial and towards residential. And sometimes that is physically renovating an office space to become a, a, a residential multifamily housing unit. But another thing that we have to balance here is that the demand for residential housing is also declining as those interest rates are rising and, and are going to continue to increase as the Fed keeps boosting rates. Now, we want to keep in mind, we don't have the inventories to have a crash like we did in 2008, um, but we are still expecting to see the residential housing market slump over the coming year. Now, it normally does slump in the winter, and now we don't expect it to really come up much in the spring. That sounds good, Bentony. So we'll just kind of keep watching that and see how things uh, develop over the next few months. And hopefully whatever adjectives we use to describe what's going on in the uh, the economy as far as uh, real estate goes, we'll, we'll see how we adapt. It's nice to see that 2023 is going to be a big return to normal. Well, okay, maybe not the normal we were thinking of, but Bethany, as you create the monthly updates, which are available to our online subscribers, in fact, I think those are going up in the next couple of days. What should we be looking forward to reading there? Yeah, so what we're seeing in the in the monthly data is that the Puget Sound is definitely showing signs of contraction. You definitely see a recession looming, things like that. But when we look at the national data, things still look peachy. We're not really seeing the those same signs of decline, right? So the Puget Sound has the unemployment rate ticking up even higher than the national rate, which we rarely see. So it'll be interesting to see moving forward whether our region is the canary in the coal mine and we're going to see those same changes in other places, or if this slowdown, contraction, recession thing is going to be more isolated to places like Seattle, Portland, tech hubs, and things like that. I think that's that's, a, that's an interesting uh, phenomena for us, right? So, Hart, give me your two cents here on how you think this is going to roll out. Do you think uh, nationally? We, I know you and I have talked about the fact that we're going to see a recession, but it's going to be a recession for whom? Um, different sectors and different households are going to be impacted in different ways. So give me a flavor here. Well, I'll, I'll say uh, recession, but people arguing over definitions and, and meanings, right? Uh because a recession isn't just a contraction in GDP, which I think is quite possible, if not likely, 
but some people would say, how can you have a recession with unemployment in the five, five to six percent range? That's too strong of an economy. But I think the unemployment rate needs an asterisk right now, given the low labor force participation rate that we've got. I think I mean, listening to Cam talk about uh, more and more people using credit, fewer people paying paying that off. There, there seems to be an inevitable period where people have been spending, spending, spending with all the stimulus money that they had for a while. Uh, they've now spent past that and are in, into credit and debt. There'll be a slowdown with that housing, whether you think about the wealth effects associated with, with housing and people think, oh no, my house is coming down in value or just the slowdown and, and that fewer people buying, fewer people buying the furniture that goes with the buying and, and so on and so forth. So I, I think I think you're seeing the slowdown in the tech centers like Seattle first. Uh, it may be a little bit bigger in the Seattles than in the U.S. overall because we had the growth, the laptop crowd, right? Amazon, Microsoft, and so on did so well during the recession that we we're going to see a little bit more slowing on, in, in those areas. But I think I think the, the the U.S. comes down a bit as well. Can I also remind our listeners that we've got the real estate index that comes out this month as well. And so should check that out um, because there's a lot to talk about right now in real estate. It's such an exciting time to be an economist. That's for sure. All right. Well, I want to thank all of you today for uh, for sharing all your thoughts and then for all of our folks listening to this. I thank you for your time and your thoughts as well, because this brings us to a close of this edition of After Office Hours with the Puget Sound Economic Forecaster. We encourage you to follow us on social media to have a front row seat of reading over our shoulders on a daily basis. And that's a yoga move. You can also learn about other ways to connect with us that way as well. You can reach us via our website, cebr at www.edu, or by email, cebr at www.edu, with questions, comments, or if you're interested in having us bring our show on the road to your uh, event or your gathering, we do all kinds of good economic talks around the region um, and always happy to do that. After Office Hours with the Future Sound Economic Forecaster is a production of the Center for Economic and Business Research at Western Washington University. We want to thank our ever amazing producer, Jill Poon with KDMC for making the sound halfway decent from uh, what we provide to her as raw material. To learn more about the topics discussed today, please visit economicforecaster.com. And uh, while you're there, subscribe to our quarterly newsletter. Subscribe to After Office Hours of the Future Sound Economic Forecaster on Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Transistor, or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. From all of us at Western Washington University, have a great day.